hopefully I'll do this in an hour and then we'll have like a 30 minute discussion afterwards. Um, so don't, don't hesitate if you need me to clarify a point that you didn't quite catch. Um, so the title of my talk today is trying to, um, trying to convey what is going on in terms of politics of land reform in the country. Um, with a particular lens to agribusiness, but not, but but it's actually more broadly um, painted um, with land grabs, land reform, and resistances to that. Um, but my my specific the sector that I'm looking at to explore this is agribusiness. Um, but I'm only going to talk to agribusiness about a quarter of the presentation, as well as. Um, and I, I could do a whole. I would talk about this all day if I could. But the role of uh, Chinese agribusiness in the north, um, which is actually most of my dissertation that I'm working on at P, uh, a PhD at Berkeley, but I'm I'm only going to force myself to have two slides on that. Um, but maybe we can explore that more in in the discussion as well. Um, I actually started um, a decade ago. Um, Um, I started actually a decade ago um, working predominantly in northern Burma in Kachin areas, both in northern Shan State and southeastern Kachin State, um, looking at cross-border timber trade between China and Burma. Um, and then in the later mid-2000s, um, my local research assistants and uh, community development workers, they all basically very politely in a nice Burmese sort of way said, can you please stop studying this topic that you keep coming here to talk to us about, we would like to take you to our fields and show you um, not pictures like this. This is in northern Shan State, um, harvesting paddy in the lowlands, or a Swidden field in Kachin State. Um, we want to show you scenes such as this. There's barbed wire that is being is popping up all over our lands, and we don't quite understand what this is about. Your researcher, study this and, and help us figure this out. That started in like 2008 um, and has been a bit of an obsession of mine since then and has led me into places that I had, I had no idea um, what, uh, where that would have actually led me. And, and part of the story I'm going to tell... Yes, yes, thank you. Who asked you to do that? My local um, networks of uh, Kachin, Sean, Lisu, Lahu, et cetera, et cetera. Some. My, my colleagues that are on the ground, most of them are community development workers working for local NGOs. Yeah, good question. Um, or trying to understand scenes like this. This is clearing um, a cassava uh, concession in Hukong Valley um, in and along the largest, uh, the world's largest tiger reserve in western Kachin state. Um, as is this picture. This is um, preparation for planting cassava for the Chinese biofuel market. Um, so I'm going to um, just give a very brief, brief background on the reform so that we're all kind of on the same page. Um, then I'm going to quickly go through these two new land laws that came in March of 2012, uh, which is very substantial in terms of the legal backing that the land reform and agribusiness has. Um, and then, as I said, talk briefly about Chinese agribusiness specifically in the north. Um, and then I'm going to end by giving both government responses and civil society responses to, to land reform and land grabs. 
Um, and, and, that, and that's where we'll end. But it actually is going to take, I think, an hour to get through all of that. Um, so hopefully we have patience today. Um, right. So um, I'm not... I'm not so clear of what the background will be um, for what is going on in Burma. Um, even living there is hard to keep up with everything that is going on. Um, but very briefly, a um, new constitution happened in 2008, um, highly contested. Um, national elections, 2010, also highly contested. Um, then we have a new president, President Thinsane, uh, March 2011. Um, and, I mean, what's been exciting for me as someone who works with several NGOs, writes a lot of advocacy reports, and tries to put my research into action, is that I'm now able to go to Naypyidaw and speak with political parties, um, MPs in parliament, government commissions and bodies. I mean, this is, this is uh, for me, it's, I'm still trying to get my head around that I can actually lobby the government in Myanmar, while for eight years I was actually like actively hiding from the Myanmar government. So this is the type of dramatic changes that have happened in like a year and a half. Um, uh, unbelievable. Um, the, the type of reform that is happening, I don't think it's a stretch to say, is a, is a certain type of neoliberal reform, whatever you want that to mean. Um, where before we went from Western sanctions and more of a, a human rights agenda um, to, um, to actively facilitating certain types of, of, of uh, investment. Um, and, and that is deeply geopolitical between uh, China, U.S., and, and Burma, um, and has also put the development aid industry in, in an interesting situation, going to facilitating business from their home countries, uh, U.S. and, and Britain, um, uh, in particular, um, while all of this is going on, while everyone's just excited about business opportunities, it's going from uh, you know what former President Bush called the axis of evil to now the Western darling. Um, while all of that is going on, we have this national peace process, um, which is almost sometimes easy to forget this is happening. Um, very complicated, so many things going on, different institutions, players, both international and domestic, um, that is basically trying to deal with the fact that this is a country that is in still, and, and hopefully coming out of, one of the world's longest-running civil wars, where you have armed groups, uh, ethnic armed groups across the country, particularly around the ethnic borders, um, who are in the midst of, uh, uh, or have signed, almost all have signed ceasefire agreements, but these are all very tentative. Uh, there's a strong push from various groups to have a genuine political dialogue rather than just have a ceasefire. Um, and, of course, then uh, there's an ongoing war in Kachin areas against the Kachin Independence Organization and Army, the second largest in the country, which is actually where most of my research uh, has taken place for the past 10 years. So um, there's a lot going on in this country, and it, I think anyone who can summarize it uh, is uh, not doing justice to the, to the very, very complicated mess that is unfolding. Um, this is actually a map. I also work for a transnational institute, TNI, that is uh, based in Amsterdam. For many years, we've been working on ethnic politics um, and actually the drugs, drug-related issues. Um, and now land conflict is, a, is our newest uh, big issue that we're trying to tackle with our written work. Um, this is a report, or a map coming from one of the reports. It's just trying to uh, not only illustrate, for those who are not familiar, the geographical um, location of the country, but... Um, these are various resource extraction projects, not precise by any stretch of the imagination, but just give you a sense of kind of the politics of resource extraction. Um, uh, these are all in ethnic border areas that have been experiencing six decades of conflict, and it's predominantly where 
uh, resource wealth is located in the country, and precisely the reason why there's a lot of interest, business interest in this country. Um, so it's just it's kind of visually demonstrating this uh, very particular geography of resources and, and conflict. See now I'm already standing. Um, right. Um, it's important um, for this narrative that I'm going to be telling today to please keep in mind that the majority of the population are smallholder farmers. Um, the majority of those do have no access to electricity or, uh, or running water. Um, these are some of the poorest populations in all of Asia. Um, it's 70, around 70% of the country's population. This is extremely significant. There's not many countries like this left in the world where the majority are peasants or smallholder farmers. Um, since uh, after 88, and there was kind of quasi-market reforms that have been uh, slowly unfolding, since that time, there has not been one policy or one law that has even been remotely favorable to farmers in the country. Um, every policy has been trying to, has been to support the kind of indigenous capitalist class, if you will, which includes the military. Um, and not the majority population. And we're seeing this, as you, as I'll go into my legal land analysis, um, this is the, that precedent is carrying through to this day. And not surprisingly, when you have no policies in place that are supportive of your farmers, um, you have um, increasing landlessness among, among farmers, increasing debt, and you have a widening gap of landholding sizes, where increasingly farmers are having less than one acre, which is completely impossible to live off of, um, and so this is having catastrophic socioeconomic impacts on smallholder farmers uh, to basically keep the household going. Um, and then, for those of you who are not aware, there's, this is, I don't totally feel comfortable with this simplification um, as someone who's studied anthropology, but in general you have kind of Burmans in the lowland doing paddy, and you have um, non-Burman ethnic minorities in the uplands doing, doing Sweden or uh, shifting cultivation. Uh, it's an uncomfortable simplification, but, but it is important in terms of uh, land reforms that are unfolding and the resistances against them, and I'll get more into that as we go through. Right, so in terms of um, significant land-related laws that have been passed uh, in the past year and a half, there has basically been four. Um, two land laws, which I'm going to talk about next, and then the special economic zone law, as well as a foreign investment law, both of which have land-related, um, uh, um, uh, what do you call, uh, acts or whatever in, in the law. And the situation now, which is perhaps what you're reading in the news when farmers are protesting their land being taken away, it's because large-scale infrastructure projects, as well as like special economic zones, uh, developing new ports, pipelines, along with foreign agricultural investment, has become this very new an extremely real threat to farmers' land and livelihoods. And it's on practically on the front page of uh, Burmese and, and non-Burmese uh, papers in Rangoon every day, um, which is also itself phenomenal that it can be written about. Um, this might be more interesting to people who do f more closely follow Burmese politics. Um, the names aren't as important. What I want you to get out of this slide is that there's deep entrenched political interests in the land laws that got passed, which were the first two laws, these two land laws, were the first to be passed uh, uh, by President Thein Sein's office when he, um, when he became president. Um, so that says something that those were the first laws that they wanted to put on the table. 
They were rushed through before the NPs knew what it meant to be an NP. Um, and they've gotten much better at uh, kind of uh, uh, raising questions and problems with these laws. But this was very quickly passed through by basically um, former military general Wu Shui-man, who's Speaker of the House and potentially could be the next president, um, so he says. Um, the former Minister of Agriculture, uh, Wu Tae-woo, who's now head of uh, the military's party, USDP. Um, Miet Lang is, is a former general uh, and now the current agriculture minister, who everyone, including DGs in the Ministry of Agriculture, are terrified of, and who the president himself does not have the power to kick him out of that post. Um, and Tainian, Wu Tainian, who's uh, CEO of Yuzana, which is a very famous Burmese company, um, who's one of those uh, land or uh, well-known crony companies, as the Burmese call, um, who I argue is probably the largest non-military private landholder in the country. Basically, these guys got together and put this law together and rushed it through Parliament. Um, and now we're dealing with the, the, the implications of that. And um, this will come up a few times in my presentation, but this collusion of kind of military business interests, um, I think, is something to definitely take note of. I see this popping up regularly in the way that reforms are being um, not only um, legalized, but also implemented. Um, where you have like an indigenous capitalist class that, again, the Burmese generally denote as being crony companies for being the private arm of the military during the regime time, and um, top-level military officials who, some, who mostly are now top-level government officials, getting rid of their green uniform and putting on their white one. Um, and and this, this kind of new kind of class alliance is ex precisely... The, the alliance where foreign investors are kind of forced to sink their money uh, due to how you have to do business in the country. And this is the point, this is like a very important point that I want to raise in terms of the type of economic development that is coming to this country and how business is actually unfolding and who's a part of that, um, who is benefiting and who is not. Um, some of the same people that, um, you know, basically the EU and the US governments had total strong sanctions against are now people who are inking multi-billion dollar business deals, sometimes with huge corporations. So this is quite interesting, the changes that have happened in such a short period of time. Right. Are we all good so far? Okay. Farmland law. I'm not going to do justice to this law, but basically it's a hallmark kind of market logic sort of law where you turn land into a tradable commodity. Right? This is, in my opinion, how you would define market capitalism, um, roughly. Um, land needs to be, needs to be uh, tradable, and you need to commodify it. This has never happened in Burma before. Um, it was never legal to sell land. Um, it was t definitely happening, but it was all informal and illegal, according to Burmese laws. But now this law is saying, let's title land, let's give you a land use certificate, and then that you can trade on the market something that we've known for a very long time. But for, for Burma, this is a, it's a new concept to have this be done in a certain legal manner. Um, this might sound good, um, but there's many problems with that when you have a country where 70% of the population are smallholder farmers and maybe 30 to 40% of the population are ethnic minorities, most of whom are practicing Sweden cultivation in the uplands. Um, uh, 
Swidden cultivation, sometimes it's hard for me to step out of my discipline. Is that a commonly, do you guys, does everyone know what I mean? Yes, but we don't like that word. <laughs> That's the, that That's has worse. negative connotations. That's worse than this. Um, slash and burn, because what... Yeah, exactly. Dongya, it's Dongya in Burmese, which actually is now an international word, but basically it means that you, you clear a, a forest on a hill and you plant your crops and you do that for several years and then you move. The point is, is that you move then to another spot and repeat while the old plot uh, is fallow, as we say, and it's regenerated with its nutrients, da, 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 and then you go back to it. But the point being is that it moves, okay? So, this law basically says now we need to do land titling, uh, which is quite common in post-socialist uh, countries, Vietnam, da, 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 da. this is the Lao, Cambodia, this is what they have been going through for the past uh, 10 years. So Burma is now going on this trajectory. Um, however, when you do land titling, of course, it can't move. It has some, you can't title something that is moving. It has to be set in place. Um, at least the way that this law is uh, saying land titling, uh, how it will be done. So only private, permanent, lowland household agricultural plots can be titled. However, you have, you have millions of people who are practicing this moving cultivation in the, in the uplands. So that cannot be titled. It's logistically not possible. This is a huge problem. Um, also, it does, does not recognize customary land practices at all. C customary is, is not happening. There is no official legal recognition of customary land practices, rules, regulations, etc., etc. You only have statutory, right? Only Myanmar government law as it relates to land livelihoods and, and how they manage their land. Um, and so... You, also, you, right now, the vast majority of people, like vast, vast majority of people, have no land title, right? But there, the way that um, land development is already happening is as if people are already supposed to have this title. So all the land that's now being taken is being taken um, according to... Uh, I'll get back to that graph, or that picture. It's is being taken according to this law, which is the vacant, fallow, and virgin land law. In Burmese, it's like five times longer than that one even, um, which says that if you don't have an official land use title, we are going to call it either a vacant land or a wasteland, and we can legally take that land and reallocate it to the private sector. There, again, no recognition of customary or collective land use rights. Um, you cannot title land that moves in the uplands. Um, very, very, very few farmers have a land use title, precisely because um, most people are still very afraid to go to a government office. This is, um, you know, there's a collective historical memory that has happened. People are not ready, most farmers are not ready to actually go to a government office. Um, and although it's supposed to be free, this is not how the world, this is not how things work in Burma. You have to pay a bribe to get anything. And most farmers in the end cannot pay these bribes in order to get that land use title, even though it's not how it's supposed to be working. Um, so we have, we have a messy situation. Um, and farmers are saying, we have, we have a right to be on this land. We have been paying taxes on this land for decades. However, the Myanmar government is saying that th those were not official. Those were actually bribes. <laughs> and they have these receipts. You know, these farmers are showing all of these receipts for decades of paying taxes. Those are discounted, right? The people who are practicing shifting cultivation, they just have their rights were just immediately erased with these laws. 
And in the law, it says that farmers who are on these parcels of land and have no official land use certificate, as it's called, are now going to be called squatters. They have no legal recourse, and if they don't vacate the land when the businessman comes, that they can be immediately put in jail without any, um, without any, what do you say, uh, legal recourse. Legal recourse. There's no court. They they have no right to go to, to go to court because they're squatting on this land. This is what I'm hoping that people are reading in the paper because it is there. Um, you have to maybe read more Burmese Burmese press in English to get that. But this is like one of the hottest issues in the country right now, this issue. And it's pretty political. People are very divided in this and how to deal with this situation. But the point is, this is the situation. Um, development communities <coughs> grappling with what, what we do. Um, oh, I, if, if I may, I'll just go back to, to this. This is, um, this is actually an NGO manual on land titling. Um, this is like visual anthropology at its best, in my opinion, um, for so many reasons. <laughs> Um, but my, my, what, what I'm trying to stress with this is like um, how this is teaching to Burmese the concept of private property that has never really existed so much in, in our Western sense of private property, where you can literally um, pick up a piece of land and um, trade it. Um, what this is doing is completely invisibilizing um, culture, uh, people's personal experiences and attachment to land. They, they were born on this piece of land. Their grandmother died on this piece of land. This is not something you just pick up and shake hands and then get rid of it, right? There's, 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 there's emotion in this land. But what this is showing is that actually it's a tradable commodity now and that um, people with insanely large noses and like this weird like Hitler thing going on um, can also now buy this land. Um, this is being distributed throughout the country, um, this amazing... Okay. Any questions so far? Right. So, in conclusion, I think I've probably said most of this. Um, there's, a, um, you know, I work on in ethnic areas in the upland, so there's um, ex there's so much concern amongst these farmers on what they can do, and honestly, it's I can't. I, there's nothing for them to do. There's no way they can title their land unless they settle in the lowlands, which is a whole other story I won't get into. Um, so, so that's a serious problem. Also, forestry and agriculture are separated land use categories. So, like agroforestry, which is most how people manage their land, that's not actually legally possible with these laws. You have to be you're either doing forestry or you're doing agriculture. Um, and this is actually following the British colonial stuff that was blah blah blah. Um, they still have no freedom of crop cultivation, despite what the government says. If you're growing paddy, you have to keep growing paddy, and you cannot let it fallow. You can't change your land use without permission from the divisional head, which no farmer in their right mind would want to, go, want to deal with. Um, and then, and I think this is really interesting, both of these laws, um, the farmland law and the VFV law, they each have a kind of like a land committee at each one of the administrative levels. And the central level of both of these committees is headed by the Minister of Agriculture, Umiet Line, who's the guy that most people are terrified of, um, former military commander in uh, Northern Shan State. And he, he oversees these committees, and in the law it says that no one can sue me. I am the final word on all land reallocation, 
and and I'm beyond I'm beyond the rule of law. It literally just says I'm beyond the rule of law, which is actually totally against the 2008 Constitution. <laughs> but there it says it in the law, and that was exactly the same case with the 1991 uh, land laws that tried to do the same thing, but they didn't have really the political clout or the foreign investment backing to do this. But the, what's interesting about this is it's exactly the same as the 1991 law, but now somehow, now it's in, in the law this time, which both foreigners are, and investors, not just foreigners, investors are applauding these two land laws because it allows them to invest in land. But this is quite interesting, um, i.e. The, the military top-down, beyond-the-rule-of-law lineage from the regime period has been directly written into this law, um, which I think says a lot about what is going on. Um, these are the two the type of landscapes that I'm seeing uh, since the mid 2000s in northern Burma. Like you get these large um, brick walls um, behind of which here is like planted rubber seedlings. You never ever used to see these sort of things in the earlier 2000s, um, and, and those type of landscapes are, are increasing greatly. Um, and this is mainly because the government is um, one of their um, what they'd like to see is the agricultural sector to be like one of their hallmark sectors to be developed by the foreign community. Um, they're very much pushing the agribusiness sector in their country, um, largely because the Minister of Agriculture, but um, other people aligned with him, um, and the indigenous capitalist class in Burma. Um, and this is now the, one of the major drivers of land dispossession in the country, and I'm predicting that it will definitely continue to be pending uh, a lot of politics uh, in terms of how people feel uh, how safe their investment is in the country. Um, there's various targeted industrial crops. Um, palm oil in the South and Tenintri region is going to be super hot. Uh, look for it. It's happening. Malaysia is very excited. It is um, it potentially could be the... It is definitely the newest frontier of palm oil development in, in the world. Um, it just depends on how this is going to proceed forward, whether it actually um, does become the newest uh, location for palm oil production. Um, I will be coming out with a report uh, later next year that is going to be looking at the politics of that um, as I leave the country and write my dissertation. But it's, it's definitely something to, to look for. It's also um, some of the largest, last remaining lowland dipterocarp rainforests in all of Southeast Asia. This is some of the most pristine, valuable forest lowland habitat remaining in Asia, which is now the people are drooling over this habitat for palm oil. Um, this is not a happy story, unfortunately. Um, also, rubber. Um, you've had rubber being grown in Burma for a very long time, but the, the new frontier of rubber is in the north, in northern Shan State, uh, eastern Shan State, uh, in Wa territory, and in uh, parts of Kachin State. Uh, which I've been studying for a long time. Um, you can read more about that in a T&I uh, report called Financing Dispossession. It's available online in like, different languages. Um, and then biofuels. Detrofa, uh, which was a military thing that's kind of died down now. Uh, cassava um, uh, and sugarcane, which are both very popular along the China border for China's biofuel market. Uh, again, this is, uh, this is a cassava concession for Chinese biofuel market in and along the world's largest tiger reserve in Hukong Valley uh, by Yuzina. Remember Taimient? I said he was kind of one of the largest private landowners in the country who helped push those land laws through. This is his concession. It's a mere 200,000 acres. Mm. Um, not that he's planted, but that he has been allocated. Um, 
Yes, he's doing very well from these laws. Um, this is just to show the, the growth in agricultural concessions in the country from 2011 to 2012. I want to point out that it's precisely during this period right here when, for the first time, um, farmers started to protest across the country in different ways against land grabbing that was not only for agriculture, but a lot of times it was for agribusiness. And it, was, it erupted into one of the country's biggest problems. How the hell are we going to deal with this? It was precisely during this time, front page news every day, that we had um, a 76% increase in area allocated for agribusiness concessions to where now we have nearly 3.5 million acres that have been given to domestic Burmese uh, companies. Um, and the, the hot spots are tenintry. That is because of palm oil, uh, rubber to some degree, but also mostly palm oil, like I, I mentioned before. And in Kachin, I do not believe this number. I'm, I don't know what Dan in the background would think. I don't even know if it's possible to allocate 1.4 million acres in Kachin State, but um, that's, this is from the government Department of Agriculture Planning Office. Um, and when I question them on how, like, these numbers actually don't make so much sense to me, they, they said it was not, um, wasn't within their power to confirm or not the accuracy of these figures. Um, okay. Um, so I said, okay, I'll be, I'll be publishing those figures then. Um, uh, again, these are, again, these are the very new landscape. I mean, I know the rest of the world has seen landscapes like these for a long time. Brazil, Indonesia. But this is like a very new phenomenon in the country. Um, and then agro-conversion timber, which I'm trying not to get too specific here, but basically, um, because I'm, I'm both in the forestry and the agricultural sectors, I get very excited by this topic because it brings both my lives together, uh, so it's a little less schizophrenic. Um, basically, most of these agricultural concessions, many of them are being located in forested areas, which is very convenient. Um, and it, it basically, uh, the, the, the companies that are getting these concessions are in the timber trade. And many of them are not planting the crops. They're getting the land, they're cutting down the trees, they're selling the trees, which is good money. And sometimes they'll be interested in planting the agricultural crops, sometimes not. It depends on the company and the location and the crop and all these other things. But it appears that this could actually potentially be the largest source of timber in the country. Um, I'm meeting with DFID uh, tomorrow morning to discuss this very topic because now there's no more timber sanctions. So the EU and North America are very excited about the prospect of importing legal timber from Myanmar. Um, and when you look at this issue, um, there are some serious questions raised on the sustainability and ethics of importing timber from Myanmar when so much of it is coming from clear-cut forests uh, in ethnic conflict areas that are actually coming from uh, agribusiness concessions, who themselves are al allocated to crony companies. So this is um, an interesting topic, but I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um, these are the sort of new um, palm concessions that you're beginning to see in Tenintri. Now, again, for like, if you know about Indonesia's palm oil sector, this is nothing. But for Tenintri, these are very new landscapes, very alarming. As you can see, there's clearly no people in here. Um, there's... Uh, there's um, it's a place where there's practically no roads... They've been left out of development, and then these sort of landscapes are coming in, and they're importing labor from Burman areas by ship from Yangon. And according to the businessmen that I interview, most of those then flee to Thailand because they don't like this work. So this is like causing, it's not just changing the biophysical landscape. We're talking about recreating a whole sort of 
uh, socioeconomic system, wage labor. Um, uh, this is this is there's a lot going on um, apart from just planting crops. Any questions so far? I have one. You um, mentioned the development agencies, development banks. Mm -hmm. To what extent are they important to finance the land grab? Can we say that for the Q and A? I have, I have a bad feeling I might, and never finish my presentation. I like, I really like that question, but I'm gonna let's hold that off for the Q and A. Yeah. Um, this gets. Uh, I'm trying not to be too esoteric on this one. This is more my actual uh, PhD topic. Um, what I think that um, this country has um, a lot of very important political histories, um, and there's a particular geography to that. Um, if you're in the north, or if you're in the south, or you're in the center, um, and these political histories have a certain race to it. Race is very, well, I'm American, we are obsessed with race, but, but in, in Burma, race is, has been um, uh, very important to the way that um, independence struggle happened, the military, I mean, I won't go into this, but it's, it's deeply important. And what, what, I, what I'm seeing is that the, the way that these laws are being made and the land grabs happening, the agribusiness sector being developed, and the resistances to that um, seems it's coming out of this deep political racialized history. And it's very different in different parts of the country. This has been the big asset for me to like step out of the north and kind of see what's going on in other parts of the country. Um, and, and I realized, wow, it really matters in terms of the part of the country you're in because they had very different histories that have happened to them and people interpret events in a very different sort of way. Um, so that's all that this slide is saying. I, I think it's really important, but I, it's not my intention in this presentation to go too much more into that, um, except that um, except that this is where I, I would like to um, bring in my China story. Um, in northern Burma, along the Yunnan-China border, um, you have, well here for example, this is a, uh, an agricultural concession just outside of Lashio, the provincial capital in the north, in Shan State, um, a northeast commander-owned concession, with, uh, which is great for researchers like me to have a sign like that to advertise it for me as I'm going by the road. Um, um, yeah. Um, in, in northern Burma, the Chinese agribusiness is actually coming out of opium crop substitution program, which is actually a national program coming out of Beijing, which is intended for both northern Laos and northern Burma. So it's like um, it's a, they, the companies receive a subsidy, but more importantly, they get uh, import zero uh, tariff-free imports for their agricultural commodities into China. This is a highly coveted uh, permit. Um, it basically means guaranteed great profit if you can get those agricultural commodities into Yunnan. Um, and that started in 2006, which is exactly the time when you started to see uh, agricultural concessions pop up in Kachin areas in northern Shan State and southeastern Kachin State. Um, and... I've been doing research on that for like, well, since 2008. I've written about it quite quite extensively. Um, it's a bit of a sensitive one, this topic, um, because what I have found is, is that not surprisingly, Chinese agribusinessmen, um, you need to go through what can be called a local strongman. You need, you need someone to get you that land. 
um, that would be the most powerful, well-connected person on the ground in the area that you're looking. Um, in the case of Northern Shan State, generally what that means is that you're an ethnic militia leader. Um, that's the reality there, and that's coming out of very particular history um, during the uh, yeah, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and onwards, which has a lot to do with how counterinsurgency um, was conducted by the Burmese military in these areas. Um, again, I'm not going to go into that. That's a whole presentation in itself. But the point being is that there's these, these actors are who are facilitating these Chinese agribusiness in the north. These are the people who have power and authority in those areas. They're, um, they're, yeah, I'll just tell them, they're not exactly paramilitaries, but they're, they've made deals with, with the Burmese military to be able to conduct business as they wish and also be a proxy for the, for the military to conduct battles uh, in the area against, or against rebel groups. And many of those, not all, but many of those ethnic militia leaders are involved in the drugs trade, as it turns out. This is the uh, area of Burma where um, poppy is grown and heroin manufactured, as well as uh, methamphetamines. Um, it supplies Asia's its heroin. Um, and I, the irony is, is so ridiculous that China's opium crop substitution program is basically... Um, is basically um, uh, facilitating Chinese businessmen to do business with militias who are involved in drug production. I have gone to Beijing, I have gone to Kunming, I have written this, I have presented this, putting myself quite open to the Chinese government, and um, they do not like my narrative that I'm telling them, but this is what's going on. It is absolutely ridiculous. There's, um, there's so many families are losing their land because of this in addition to already being on, uh, living in fear with these ethnic militias and being involved in having to live in an economy that is dominated by drugs. And this is yet another layer, but it's coming from an opium crop substitution program that's providing alternative development to farmers in order to help them get out of the drugs economy. So it's like, it's crazy. Um, and you can read about it in Financing Dispossession, a T&I report. It's a fairly lengthy report um, if you want to know more about that. So I'm very uh, quite agitated and passionate about that topic, but I'm, I'm going to leave it at that. Um, here's a sign, again, great for researchers. It says the name of the militia, militia right here, Manba Pithuzit. Pithuzit is like this type of um, name that they give to this type of uh, militias. Um, here's the militia's insignia. Um, and, uh, yeah, it says the amount of acres and, and the year and everything. It's on a government board. Um, and they're getting their financing through the Chinese agribusinessmen. So it's like a, like a joint venture, if you will. Uh, similar story. I've, this is a fascinating case study of 30,000 acres of uh, rubber and banana. This is near the border of uh, the Kachin Independence Organization's headquarters in Liza. Um, I've written about this in, a, in an article um, that really tries to show how mm, the way that agribusiness is happening is actually a form of counterinsurgency. Um, I'm also not going to get into that topic today as much as I'd love to, but if you want to know more about that, then I, I'll point you to this article in Journal of Peasant Studies. Uh, you can come up to me if you, if you want me to give you the citation for that. Right. Okay. So, responses. If that's the situation, how are people dealing with this? Um, 
I think everyone, the development industry, the government, civil society has recognized that land grabs, agribusiness sector, the special economic zones, this whole transferring land from smallholders to the private sector or, or the state um, is, is the biggest issue confronting Burma right now, especially because of six decades of being under military rule and the military taking all of this land where no one could say anything. And suddenly now, um, thanks to these very reforms, farmers uh, can and do express how they feel about what has happened to their land. Um, not always safe for them. They don't, oftentimes they end up in jail. Some, some people get shot, but they're still expressing their outrage of what has happened and what is now increasingly happening. And people are taking many different responses to this situation. Um, for one, one of, the, one of the most interesting is something in English that's called the Land Acquisition Investigation Commission. This is um, coming out of Parliament, where the person who's chairing this is actually a high-level person in the military's political party, the USDP, which is a bit counterintuitive. I was very shocked when I heard that, which means not everything is so black and white. We must remember not to make things black and white. Um, and their, their mandate was to investigate the land grabs, uh, do research, case studies, and an analysis, and submit that to the president. Um, many people, including myself, this is a fantastic initiative. This is the government taking this issue very seriously. And uh, many people, including myself, have tried to work with this commission in order to um, have a ro more robust data collection and, and analysis. Um, however, they have no decision-making power, and most of the members, all MPs, had relatively low capacity in, in doing a monumental task, which, was, um, which is currently a, a problem. Um, with their findings, uh, I, I'm, I'm just so shocked uh, that they, this is actually what they reported. I was expecting something very soft and squishy and something easily digestible. It was not. Their findings were that the Burmese military were responsible for over half of the land grabs that they documented. This was like 565 cases over 1,000. I, was, I, was, I didn't even think the military would enter into their analysis. So as someone who studies this, I was extremely happy that they, had, they were brave enough to put this on the table. And don't forget who the chair is of this commission. Um, and this amounts to about 250,000 acres that they have documented. Um, as someone who focuses on ethnic areas, I was unhappy to see that most of these areas that were documented were in Burman areas, not in ethnic areas. So then you think, wow, if that's 250,000 acres of which they documented, and most of that was in Burman areas, what if we open that up and start talking about land that has been taken by battalions and families and agribusiness concessions to military families, et cetera, et cetera, in ethnic areas? I mean, we get a, an idea of the, the scale to which this is a, a huge issue in the country. Okay, so they, that's what they reported. It was totally underreported in the Burmese press, unfortunately. They really didn't pick this up for whatever reason. Um, and a military official um, came out and publicly said that we will return 18,000 acres of that 250. Um, and to date, I don't think any land has been returned. I don't know if the intention is to actually return any land, but that was what was publicly said. And I also don't know of any civil society groups who are um, pushing the military to follow through on those words. But uh, that, this is all, you know, everything I'm talking about today is like in motion. So, uh, so we'll see what happens with that. How am I doing on time? I forgot to look or anything. 
I'm always... The 50 minutes. I'm at 50? Yeah. Uh, that's not bad. I can deal with that. Thank you. Um, okay. Um, another one um, is the Mimar Farmers Association, or MFA. These two are complicated. So... Mimar Farmers Association is the only legal association right now for farmers. All others have been denied legal, uh, their legal, that legal right. Uh, this is following the new uh, law on association and the right to protest. Or so. I, I, there's like a new law that allows for these associations. Um, and this one got it. And we're like, okay, um, I work with many different farmers groups, they have all been repeatedly denied to have legal association. What's going on with the Myanmar Farmers Association? Why did they get it? Um, it is basically backed by very powerful paddy businessmen who have done um, business in the country with paddy for many years. Um, Uchit Kang is one of them, for those of you who know this stuff. Um, and the association um, openly, like it's, it's on their website, they actually you can look at this on the internet, um, represents middle, high-income business farmers. Uh, they're not representing smallholder farmers, and their call is that they want more capital inputs. Um, they want the state to invest in an agribusiness, basically. Um, and, and they want to kind of be the association that um, helps solidify that. Um, they never talk about um, smallholder farmers or ethnic uplands kind of type of agriculture, nor do they ever mention land rights or land tenure security. Um, these kind of same people who are, again, the, the most well-known, wealthiest kind of paddy businessmen in the country, um, based in Yangon, um, have also been able to pass this law, and the name kept changing, and I'm, I'm actually not sure what the, the name they finally agreed on, but the last time I checked it was called Law on Enhancing Economic Welfare of Farmers in English, is what it was called. Um, same people... Um, this is this is interesting. It's like they got Dosu involved, they got U.S. Aid involved, they got Schwayman involved to all kind of back this law as um, kind of a type of of, of populist um, uh, legal mechanism in anticipation of the elections that are coming in 2015 um, to basically show farmers. We've got you covered. You're good. This is totally in response to the two land laws that have been heavily critiqued by farmers groups, none of whom are giving, uh, getting legal association, by NGOs, et cetera, et cetera. This is the law that said, okay, we've got it figured out. Like, now, now you're good, and uh, you can thank us during the elections. Um, and it says exactly the same thing as the Myanmar Farmers Association. It's targeting middle, large-income business farmers um, to have increased access to credit and chemical inputs to, to basically do industrial-sized agriculture. Um, again, there's no mention of land or water use rights or tenure security. And what's so interesting is that the, the, the critique against those two land laws is that it is severely undermining everyone's land tenure security. And this is a huge problem. And they say, the people who passed this law said this is, this is going to answer that or going to alleviate that problem. Except there's the, the use of rights nowhere in there is completely ignored. It's a technical technological response. Basically, give us the inputs that you need to do industrial agriculture with. Um, 
this is not going to remedy the problem that the country is experiencing. Um, and farmers know that. They have been signing petitions. They have been contacting journalists. They have been organizing. I'll get into it in a bit. Exactly against this law. They said, this does not represent us. Who are they in Rangoon to say that this is going to help us? And so, what we're seeing is this kind of um, coming together of unlikely and somewhat likely bedfellows between kind of the reform government, who is now, you know, everyone's favorite, um, and, and, and has made the, the Myanmar government legitimate for the first time in a long time, um, the kind of old guard military top-level officials uh, who are kind of behind the scenes in many of these things, or now high-level government officials, Speaker of the House, people like these, um, and then foreign direct investment, IFI's development industry, um, including uh, USAID and DFID, who are actually gearing up to play an important role in all of this. Um, the, all of these people have now come together to kind of push the certain sort of model of development um, that sometimes I think they must be talking about a different country than the one that I've been living in uh, for the better part of 10 years because um, the people that are, are of this country are smallholder farmers. So um, you, you have this kind of rule of law, um, and other people are, have been writing about this, the importance of this kind of rule of law that is trying to be established in the country. Um, but this rule of law is being merged with kind of a police state. Right? You have these, these laws that basically say, you have no more rights. We're giving these rights to private investors in the foreign investment community. And if you don't like that, we have the police to make sure that you, uh, you follow suit. Um, so there's this kind of law and guns being merged in um, somewhat awkward ways. And I will say that this is not unique to Burma. <laughs> this, this happens uh, as a process of de development in many countries. This, this is not just like a thing that is unique to this country. And so you have farm fields, protected forests, becoming industrial states, and you have smallholder farmers that are, are um, they literally have been people, um, I've read these things, are just so amazing. There's, you know, one of the ways that the development industry and IFIs are getting investors interested in Burma is to brag about the fact that Burma is now going to have Asia's cheapest labor, and they're so excited to be exploited. Isn't this great? Like, I'm, I'm not joking. It's quite amazing how this is written about. Um, and this is also how uh, refugees who are on the Thai-Burma border, um, people are eyeing them as a wonderful source of absolutely horrifically cheap wage labor once they um, settle back um, in, in and along special economic zones in Kitchen State, or in Karen State, for example. So this is the type of dramatically new uh, way that people are thinking um, about farmers in the country. Um, and interestingly, all of the farmers that I have talked to for the past year and a half during my actual dissertation research time, is that is not what, who they want to be. They want to stay in their farms, um, and there's this total um, talking past each other in terms of discourses of what people uh, of development and what people think. Uh, you know, farmers want a certain type of development, investors want a certain type of development, and this is constantly happening in all the meetings that I have. Um, and it's quite fascinating to record all this. This is my favorite picture um, of the past two years, which maybe says something more about me than Burma, but um, I mean, seriously, look at it. Okay, this is from a citizen journalist, so it's, it's not exactly composed beautifully, but actually I think it completely adds to the dramatic craziness of this photo. Um, uh, I'll read them, and uh, the Burmese is... 
uh, even more interesting the way it's composed with the rule of laws, the air of the environment of investment, uh, or the the like life breath, the life breath of investment. This is very strong language, and the rule of law is the key to attract and promote or protect the foreign investors. Does anyone know the story behind this, or can you guess what? Where is this? What is this about? What's going on? Lepidon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Lepidon. And do you know who is instrumental in putting these banners up? Sipsi. Yeah. This is Lepidon, which is. Um, um, which is one of the, um, well done for getting both of those. Um, it, the Lepidon case is a copper mine, um, a, a massive copper mine. It actually used to be owned by a Canadian company. Um, but then they, they had a lot of pressure and finally backed out. And it's owned by um, the mil Burmese military's, one of their um, conglomerates, um, and a Chinese state-backed company that makes weapons. I won't say who, which military sometimes buys weapons from said country. Fascinating people who are the investors for that. Um, and basically, they wanted to expand this mine right during these old reforms. Let's not forget the geopolitics that are going on, where China's like, mm, to the West for taking their country, all these things that are going on. So they felt really threatened by this after they lost the Meadstone Dam in Kachin State. And the farmers rose up and said, hell no, you're not taking any more of our land. Sorry, not happening. Um, and this became the biggest land, land grab case in the country, super high profile. Burmese media has done a fantastic job covering it, um, international media as well, led by female farmers. Um, and Da Su, basically, the president played this very smartly. Oh, it's brilliant. It was like, let's put Da Su on a committee to decide the fate of this mine. Oh, it was like, played perfectly. So basically, Da Su could not win either way. No matter what she said, she was just going to not, not farewell. And she came out with a report and said it should go ahead. And the farmers kept protesting, and, and Suchi was like, well, they must not understand my ruling. So she went up there and had a press conference kind of with the farmers. Um, I don't know if this is still on YouTube, but it was the most remarkable thing I've ever watched on YouTube. Um, it's a historical moment. It was like a very historical moment was covered um, on YouTube where... Uh, Suchi explained to farmers, you know, having, you know, her family's like the most respected, right? I hope we all know this, right? Most respected, yeah, okay. So she went up there and explained to the farmers, like, why it is that her ruling was like this, and blah, 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 thank you, and like, I love your passion, or whatever, okay. And um, the farmers were like, excuse me? And they just started yelling back at her and demanding that so they said, we refuse to accept your ruling, we refuse to step down, we refuse our land to be taken, and actually, because that's your ruling, get out of here. You're not welcome here. This is like, this is like, a, 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 um, I, can't, I still can't, watching this video was so powerful. And then this, this one farmer, then lunged, he jumped, tried to attack Suchi, and then she was pulled in a car and she whipped away. Unheard of, like completely unheard of. Um, and, and, and this was the, um, this was the response, um, and this is my point, the rule of law with guns. This is kind of the new trajectory of development. If you don't like our new rule of law and, and the type of development that we're encouraging, then um, be prepared. And farmers have. 
they have been um, resisting these sort of land grabs in many different ways. First, I'm going to talk about this, maybe the, the more legal, less violent route before I get before I close in like five minutes. Um, one um, is engaging with the government using a, using more of a, a legal route with these new laws that have uh, been promulgated in the past two years. Um, this is predominantly by um, INGOs and to some extent national NGOs um, engaging with these new government departments and officials, going to NAPD on a regular basis um, to try to kind of reform these laws and make them uh, a bit <coughs> landing a bit softer, if you will. Um, one is land titling, like working with farmers to title their land so they do have these land use certificates. It's very hard to scale up, of course, because, again, most of them have to pay bribes to get them. Um, so that, that's one thing. And I have a whole critique on that, and I'm not going to go into that right now. The other is community forestry that has been being ramped up by various um, uh, NGOs and, and development uh, organizations, uh, such as pictured here, which is basically turning your food fields into... Uh, a forest that you plant trees um, as, a, as the only legal mechanism available to farmers uh, to protect their farms other than the land titling. Um, and those are both great and not great. It really depends on context, but this is like people are trying to just find a way to get some sort of legal certificate to protect their land. Um, and that's, that's what most of the NGOs that are working on land grab issues are, are focusing their efforts on. And then a very new and um, increasingly dominant industry that is coming to Yangon is doing more uh, business-friendly approaches, um, which is like um, the private-public partnerships and CSR. CSR industry is like really taking off in Yangon. Um, and again, it's based on context in terms of my own critique, whether I agree or don't agree. But like there are many different outfits, including uh, Vicky Bowman, former Burma ambassador, who is now um, also uh, in that industry. Um, and everyone's just kind of still setting up shop, so we'll see how that goes. Mm. Um, and then uh, my final uh, one is to talk about um, a very different type of resistance, broadly con um, construed. Um, and this is more where, my, where I have been with my research, um, working with community development workers and farmers groups, um, which is a not-so-legal um, resistance against these land grabs in terms of actively protesting, sometimes legally, because sometimes they do get permits, but almost never, they usually they do not get these permits, so then it's illegal to protest, um, and refusing for their land to be taken. Um, many of them um, are harassed. Um, um, several, many, if there's an identified leader, then they're usually in jail. Um, in a few cases, um, police have opened fire on protesters and have killed uh, several in the past year. Um, Amnesty International is trying to document the number of uh, farmers who have been arrested for resisting land grabs. Um, while all this is going on, uh, the international community is applauding the reforms that are going on in the country and that we have a new era in Burma. With the research that I'm doing on, on, on the politics of land, um, I am not seeing this. Um, I, my, the work that I'm doing right now, there's far, far, far more violence that is happening on the ground than ever before, and that is what I studied for 10 years. I studied military violence and land for 10 years, and I've never seen so much violence unfolding. At precisely the time of the development community, INGOs, Western governments, blah, 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 is telling the world that everything is great and you should invest in Burma. I'm here to give a very different story to that, if you can't tell. Um, um, and it's just, it's just quite shocking. Um, and so this is, this is more of like a social movement. There, are, there is a new grassroots social movement that is emerging in this country 
Um, and I still get uh, quite emotional when I think about it, because the, um, farmers have never had the ability to organize. Um, and and they, they are organizing um, in their region and also vertically up to the national level. Um, and what, is, what, people, what farmers are trying to do now is have a national political voice. Uh, they re- and they, they have tried to make this a legal voice, but they're being denied um, to be legally associated. So they say, screw it, which is one thing that I like about Burmese. They're like, fuck it, let's just do it anyway. And, and, um, and they're, I, they're so, the, the people that I work with are so adamant that they use strict democratic structures of organization for the way that they're organizing that um, I, I do, I, I get really emotional about it because it is like grassroots democracy the way that many of us want to imagine, but that is actually not happening in Napidal that everyone is talking about. Um, and so I think, this has amazing um, potential power um, and it's also terrifying for what could happen if the new powers that be or the old powers that be in Myanmar uh, wake up to pr- the potential force that this might have. So I'm, I'm, I'm very happy and very worried about this movement. Um, but they're doing like plowing protests, they're doing Occupy farmland, they're writing petition letters, they're having events in Yangon, they're, they're very vocal. The people are celebrating their newfound freedoms except that they also know that there can be some resistance from the, from the state as well. Um, and you're getting, you're getting, you know, this, is, this was early on. This is like soon after I moved there, like a year and a half ago, where people were experimenting with like, oh, we've seen in the press, like people kind of do this when they do protests. You know, this was, it was, it's, yeah, it's interesting. This is the Lepidog. Please notice that it's all women. This is all women farmers. They're holding hands, taking off that fucking drop. That is, this is the type of stuff that is going on. You're just not getting... You're not getting enough access to unless you're digging in there. Um, and, and, and that's the story that I want to leave on. This is like, it's very powerful things are happening on the ground um, and, and, and contesting the type of development that they, they are being force-fed. Um, and and that's, a, that's a beautiful thing. And that's, there's a lot of bad things going on, but I want to, I want to leave you with this image because I, I think it's, 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 it's very beautiful. Uh, I have concluding remarks. Oh, when, let's go to the q and I'm just going to leave those out because I've talked enough. Thank you. I go back to the development banks. Let's do it. Find out so what they're doing about all this. Hmm. Can I? Can I if, if it's related, question? please. Yeah. All the related how, questions. How, at the how same are you time. going to convince DFID and USAID? Okay. Of this picture. Any other directly related questions on that one? I can say the reason that I'm asking the question is I'm very surprised development banks would support anything of this kind. Because I know from personal experience that when they look at land propositions, the first question they ask, and I'm not, not talking about Burma, I'm talking about Laos, talking yeah. Cambodia. Yeah. The first question they ask is, is this going to displace people? And if the answer is yes, then they will not do it. Okay. Um, okay. For the, the IFIs, um, they are not actively supporting any uh, development project that, can I even say that? They're, um, let's focus on agribusiness, okay? Let, I'll stick with that one. Um, the World Bank, ADB, are not, um, promo- they're not developing any agribusiness concession. They're not involved in that. But what they are involved in is writing these glowing reports of how the country should be developed 
and I don't know where the hell their data comes from. It's very happy. It's like, um, you know, you would be stupid to not invest in this country. It's basically what the reports say. And their, their number one recommendation is to invest in the agribusiness sector. That is where they think the country has its most promise. And let's just say that they're not, support, they're not advocating for investing in smallholder agriculture. So it's like the way that these banks are shaping the discourse of development is, is more my concern um, because they obviously have tremendous influence in the type of development and the type of money that comes. Um, and you, these are uh, the nice thing about these IFIs is they're very they're quite transparent. So you can get all these reports online and take a look for yourself. But they're like basically invest in industrial high input agriculture with you know which is amazing. I'm coming from the environmental studies field, so it's like it's kind of amazing. I mean, climate change. Um, it's, they're fully supporting petrochemical industries, all these things, which is not surprising. It's like, really? 21st century? We could, we could actually start over here in, in a way of not actually using the same development model that had catastrophic environmental social consequences elsewhere. So that's, there's that. Um, for DFID and USAID, which have become very interesting to me, um, going really quite substantially changing their mindset and what they want to get involved in in the country, um, I had a lot of admiration... Um, I had some admiration for some of the things that both DFID and U.S. well, the U.S. Embassy were doing prior to these reforms, um, which was really like capacity building for promising young Burmese, um, very much human rights agenda, and the Myanmar government hated it. Now, um, I have meetings with them, and it's it's like a totally different. I mean, first of all, all the people are different. They everyone who was in the country before the uh, before the transition is gone. They have all new people. Um, I'm always fascinated who they brought and why. What, is, what did they bring to the table? Um, and it's about win-win solutions with the private public. Um, and agribusiness is very interesting to both DFID and USAID. They are doing lots of studies on how they can, um, how they want to approach and recommend businessmen from their respective countries to invest. Um, I know less about DFID. I know much more about USAID, and they're basically. Um, saying they're contradicting themselves constantly. Um, they say, yes, we have to invest in smallholder farmers, and then I um, find out through my own cunning research that they're also completely saying the opposite to different people, that we have to do, basically, they want to make Burma's paddy sector the world's biggest. You don't do that through smallholder farmers. Um, and, uh, you know, as an American, um, the, the agricultural companies in my country are horrific and I'm terrified of them arriving. Well they already are, but they're not investing yet. But they're this is all being actively like engineered as we sit here. So I have tried to have as many meetings as possible with USAID and DFID to constantly give these sort of presentations and I do do them like this aggressively so that at least I have a clean conscience to know that they know what's going on and then it's up to them to decide based on that information. But I I meet them on a regular basis and give them all of my reports to try to try to influence the way that they're going to invest or not. You talk to CDC. CDC? I'm not familiar with who that is. Well, CDC is actually an investment arm of the British government. Okay. Effectively, the British Development Bank. What does that stand for? Commonwealth Development Corporation. Okay. No. Well, we should talk perhaps tomorrow because I'm going to see them on Monday. Right. (laughs) Okay. Let's talk after this meeting, or after this Q&A. Thanks. Other questions in the back? Yeah, uh, thanks a lot. Uh, it's great. Uh, 
So my question is probably like the question of the own life, which is stepping back a little bit. And, and so it seems to me, and what I hear your argument being largely outside the fact that you're reporting amazing stories, which it's great that we have on the table. It's something that sounds to me very similar to the kind of uh, accumulation by dispossession argument. Right? So you have uh, you have a kind of kick-starting capitalism by dispossessing land, which create kind of like a tragedy of the commons argument. Apply true rural law and rural demand, which always go together in every place in the world, including the US, including Europe, including anywhere. And then that creates this kind of dispossession that creates the creation of a mobile, cheap labor force, which in this specific case very often needs for all sorts of reasons to move with the low end, right? So it seems to me that that kind of trajectory is a trajectory that you see over and over again in contexts where capitalism keeps starting, being in the UK in the 16th century, or now in Burma, or in Thailand in the 80s, right? And that happens, again, similar to the case of Thailand, by opening up to democracy, by people in the military becoming democrat politicians and creating these public targets, etc. right? So that seems to me the kind of larger story that you're telling, which resonates with a lot of larger story. My question is, do you see something uh, different, specific, about this configuration emerging mm-hmm. that kind of expand that theory or problematize of that theory, or you just see it as one of the many cases of that theory coming out, with obvious like, specific consideration and geopolitical interest, and blah, blah, blah. But I'm saying, I guess my question is, what is... What is if there is a contribution to a larger theory that these plays can help? Yeah, us that's a, that's a fantastic question. Um, you just basically summarized my PhD. Um, <laughs> um, you should write for me; it was beautiful. Um, yeah, my um, my I, I purposely when I give presentations, I pretend that there's no theory or like people to cite, uh, but I do that on purposefully because um, otherwise I'll be talking about too much about Marx and it'll be a turnoff for everyone. Um, but, but thank you for letting everyone know that I'm basically been a Marxist narrative to how I'm understanding what's going on. Um, what is, what is it, and it is so uncomfortably similar to what has been happening since, like, you know, your country did what they did. E.P. Thompson, for me, is, his work is hugely helpful for me to understand, I mean, the, the way that he talked about the rule of law and dispossession, um, it, it, and when I, I gave this uh, talk at Berkeley, um, amongst all the Marxists in the room, and they were just like, is this shit still happening? Am I, you know, and it's like, and, but it, and it is, is it, is it exactly the same? I mean, have we, is this just keep happening? Uh, you know, the, the more diehard Marxists will be like, yes, it is, and it will keep happening this way. So, it, but... It, I, I would hate to think that it's like you know like a cookie cutter model of, of how capitalism operates in the frontier, um, and and what and my okay so I have a short answer which would be what is interesting in ter- maybe is it easier if I stand up for people I feel like everyone's straining to see me um, what is what is um, dangerous about this the timing of these reforms is that it is at the same time. Uh, or soon thereafter when uh, basically, you know, 2008 market crash um, and you have uh, people basically, well, people started investing in land. It was like the new safe place to sink money, right? And then we had this huge spike of so-called land grabs, which is, uh, has been contested, but this has been written about so much, especially Journal of Peasant Studies and others have been writing about the spike in land grabs post-2008. 
And what is, what is dangerous about Burma is that their reforms are happening at the same time when people are so eager looking for land, specifically for growing agricultural industrial commodities. And, and that is what uh, is unfortunate with the timing. Because I have, I have a feeling that if this happened at a slightly different time, that I, there wouldn't be this such a strong push for, for foreign investment in the agribusiness sector. Okay, so that's, like, that's that answer. The, the larger answer, which I won't go too much in, is I've decided what I want to do with my PhD thesis is to actually like bring, very much bring in these political histories um, to give it such like contextual meat to show that the way that it's working out has everything to do with the very particular context of where these concessions are happening. So that it isn't this cookie cutter model. There's a, there's a specificity to this that it's really important to understand. For example, the Chinese agribusiness in the north with the drug trade, which is coming out of counterinsurgency, which is coming out of KMT, who came, came there. And it's come, you know, so that's what I'm grappling with, of like how I want to tell this story has everything to do with these entrenched context, um, yeah, give it a life that is not from, you know, like, repeating E.P. Thompson's wonderful words. How about the strategic tension between China, you mentioned, and the Western interests in securing Myanmar? How would that be the backdrop? Everything that you have described. Defit, Defit, USAID, trying to help, trying to secure yeah. by China moving down from the north. Also, trying to win the hearts and minds of the Myanmar's. Yeah. And if I could just maybe jump in no, to please. add something, yeah. does do you see that maybe playing at all into this sort of racialized histories and the context? So, you know, the policies that are happening, or the, the practices that are happening in, in majority Burman areas and the practices that are happening in non-Burman areas, um, you know, clearly the Chinese, much of the Chinese agribusiness is happening in non-Burman areas, you know, and, and a lot of uh, Western investment or aid is paying lip service to non-Burman areas, but not really yet sort of intervening meaningfully. Does, does that have a sort of racialized or ethnicized element to it? Those are, those are like, <laughs> really big questions <laughs> um, and, and good ones I um, what's, what, what is going to come out of my mouth right now um, well yeah so I, I actually used to I mean all I did was look at China Burma stuff I was always on the border um, which was especially awkward as a white American um, going to China as often as I can um, but it was basically looking at Chinese business in northern Burma and, and what that means for the people there. Um, and then all this happened. Um, and it's, um, yeah, I mean, the rhetoric from China is that, that from the Beijing government, is that this is uh, a purposeful aggression by the West um, to basically stab us in the back through the back door. They're, they're, I'm not, I'm not like... I'm, I'm, this is literally what they're saying. Um, it's very intense rhetoric. Um, and even the Mietzong Dam, which hopefully some of you are familiar with, um, the, it's so interesting. They really focus on the fact that some, I forget exactly what happened, but like some people had a meeting with the U.S. Embassy. Matt, do you know? Or Dan, I'm sure you know a lot more about this. Um, and, and then the next day, the president announced that the dam would be suspended, and that's the evidence that this is all conspiracy against China. 
Like, okay, well, um, you know, there's meetings happening every day all over the world. I don't. Um, but um, at the same time, um, I'm not discounting what Beijing government is saying. Like, the geopolitics are really intense. Um, I am not in international relations, thank goodness. Um, I'm a political ecologist and a geographer, um, but I do get in those worlds, especially where my, my uh, field site is located. Um, and, I mean, my, my, my main point in my research is that everyone's talking about what's going on, like, central Burma, around Yangon, things there. And it's like, where I'm doing my research is a whole other place. I was telling Matt this morning, it's like, Nothing has changed. If anything, there's just more militias. Um, and those militias don't have to, they're not part of the peace process. They don't have to give up their guns, right? They're like, they're part of the union of Myanmar military. Um, um, so, and I haven't seen any non-Chinese companies trying to invest in the North. Um, I think people all recognize that that is just a place that they're not going. Um, the Vietnamese have invested in rubber in uh, Rakhine State, which unfortunately is its own totally messed up place that they can't go to, and so they can't develop that concession. Um, most people are focusing on the Thai-Burma border for their investments. These are all Southeast Asian or East Asian investors. Um, I don't know. I can't answer this question. It's too big, and, and it's fantastic. I mean, yeah... Um, there is some serious politics going on, which uh, I was recently in D.C., and sometimes they want me to say things that fit their um, kind of geopolitical kind of uh, strategy quite well, which I'm, I'm not totally not willing to talk about because, of, because I focus on China. It's put me in, um, interesting in kind of some ugly places. But, um, yeah, I can say for the, for, you know, for the U.S., I mean, my God, it's Cold War all over again, in, in my, my opinion. To, to reclaim Southeast Asia. Um, yeah. It's crazy. I mean, how many decades has it been, honestly? Kevin, can I ask you to, to, to extend that a little bit further and talk about how Southeast Asian governments engaging in this process and flooding in the capital mm. might or might not be qualitatively different from uh, North American, European, or the Chinese government? Yeah, that's that's I can answer that a little better than those last two. Um, um, yeah, so I have this debate with my um, my the people I work with, like community development workers mostly, and um, so um, Burmese, uh, uh, Burman Burmese, and ethnic minorities Burmese. Um, there's just a very very strong anti-Chinese sentiment. Okay. Um, and that seems to be largely not just coming from like if you had a personal experience of having a, um, of losing land or livelihoods from a Chinese company, but also because the Chinese is largely seen as the Chinese government supporting the military during those all those years. So there's they're coming out of out of that, um, and they always say to me that they they would really they're like no to Chinese companies, but. Japanese company and American company or European company, yeah, maybe okay. And so what I challenge them is like, and I'm curious, what would be different with the way that they would mine or dam or log? And they and then they think about it, and they're like, well, I just, I think that they would listen to us more. It was like, okay. Um, and I, I don't go further with that, but it was like, I'm not trying to be overly pessimistic, but a mine is a mine and a dam is a dam. 
Um, so there's just this inherent, like, anything from the West is somehow great, and we're going to be transparent, and we're going to have, like, all these, we're going to develop you, and all these great things, which actually, I think, partially is a re- response from, like, American, British, uh, kind of their training of the new generation in Burma, um, and all that has been going on. They just think that the way that we do business is just wonderful, and we'll do great things for them. Um, could be, um, but, you know, Chinese business could do great things too. I mean, it's like there's an inherent racism that is going on. Um, and um, But so far, there's very little investment from Western-based companies. Um, almost all of it is coming, well, the, the, the major um, financiers are Thai, um, Malaysian, Vietnam, uh, Hong Kong. Yeah, at least in the stuff that I look at. Um, they're very interested in rubber and palm oil, um, and then some mines as well. Um, yeah, and so there is definitely this. It's so racialized. Sure, but how do those other countries engage in what you've described as a very geostrategic process? Right. I mean, the companies coming from Asia, from Southeast Asia, especially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you say it again? Yeah, I, I, I I'm sorry that I'm that no, 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 no. so poorly. No, no, no. Um, how do companies or governments from Southeast Asia? Okay fit into the geostrategic picture between okay, Western it. development, Chinese yeah. interests? Um, um, hmm. I've never given a politics to it. Um, I mean, um, I think um, there is less of a geopolitics to it, it's, but, but um, you're making me now question that just with your question. Um, but I, I mean, just looking at like the rubber sector, Thai, Vietnam, and Malaysian have uh, businessmen uh, who are all state-backed. Actually, mm-hmm. um, they're very interested in, in rubber, although maybe not now because it's kind of the market's falling out a bit. Um, and I never gave it some sort of like geopolitical spin to that, but I would if it was a Western-based company or a Chinese company. Um, and I and the people that I work with, the Burmese that I work with, they are also not giving it like an inherent politics with mm-hmm. where they're coming from if they're coming from Southeast Asia. Um, and I think it's because the geographies of where these concessions are being located, they've had a long time exchange with cross-border companies. So this is predominantly, this is all on the southeastern border. So Karen State, Mon State, and Tanintari. So they've, I mean, right, these, these borders are artificial anyway, but they've had exchanges all along with Thai businessmen, for example. Um, so I think, I think it fits into their lived realities a bit more. Probably not knowing enough yet about um, Burma in particular, but just looking at the you know commodity trade market worldwide, it's it's often the case that companies that have already um, like for example the timber or, or palm oil companies are probably Malaysian companies because they're already the biggest investor in that sector, and I think um, I mean looking. To me, this sounds a lot like who's conflict state building in resource-rich countries. Because um, in Liberia, it's, I worked in Liberia for a while. It's a very, mm-hmm. very similar process. And uh, you see that often Western companies aren't willing to put this like really high-risk premium on their investments um, while there's still a high risk of conflict. What they normally do is buy stakes in smaller companies or... I'm sorry, who's they here? Like Western, big mining companies, for example, or like the British palm oil companies. Mm -hmm. So they buy stakes either in local companies or companies that are willing to take the risk because they're state-backed. And then when it's more safe or the risk 
is coming down, they, you know, they take over the concession or something like that. So that's, to me, it's absolutely not surprising that you're saying that yeah. there's not much Western investment yet. Um, right. Yeah, so basically, okay, um, I completely agree with everything you just said and you articulated it lovely. Um, that I think Western-based companies are finding the risk too high because we're talking serious investment, right? And they do due diligence and all these other things, and they're like, eh, not so sure yet. But the companies coming from Asia, um, I think they have a very different sort of um, uh, culture of business um, where, one, I think risk is calculated in a very different way, and it's also these companies also don't have as much uh, risk in terms of their brand. These are smaller companies. These are like the frontier companies. The other exception to that, if it's not a frontier company, like, who the hell, I've never heard of this company. It's because they were just created, right, to go in. The other one would be state-backed. So, like, Felda of Malaysia is the world's largest palm oil business, which is fully Malaysian state. Um, and they're going in because they have, you know, they have also a very different risk assessment. Um, and they're, they're doing direct business with the Burmese government on that. Um, and, I, and, and then uh, I think what will happen then is that they lay the foundation and basically decrease the risk, and then those companies come in after uh, there's... Yeah, and I think also people are waiting for after the elections to see what the hell's going to happen. Can I ask a question related to that? Go because, for it. Um, I know you're not an um, IR scholar or political scientist, but um, can you reflect a little bit on how this process is impacting the, the peace process because it's been such mm. a turbulent period? Um, yeah. And... State. Great question. Um, thanks for raising that. Um, I should I should have actually come up in my presentation. Um, this is what I spend most of my time with TNI um, now is looking at um, kind of land conflicts in ethnic areas, and our major concern is that um, these kind of uh, resource concessions that are starting to be given in post-war but still existing conflict areas along the border are going to lead to new economic, socioeconomic grievances among the local population and then could feed back into um, armed resistance. Um, this is what we're very, we're very afraid of, um, and we're not making this up because that's what everyone is telling us, that we're, the, the communities are getting really pissed off. They're starting to mobilize. Um, different community-based organizations are beginning to write reports about all the land grabs that are going on in their areas, most of those um, are joint ventures with the leaders of those ceasefire groups. So then there's like a fallout between the local population and their like former rebel ethnic leader. Um, and so, and, and uh, basically it's a repeat from the ceasefires before um, where uh, the, at that time, um, you know, King Nguyen, the Burmese military, um, they, they traded guns for business, for briefcases, right? They basically lured people away from fighting them by offering resource concessions, which was my master's 11 years ago. I'm still studying the same thing. Um, yeah, um, we wrote about it in the last TNI briefing on called Access Denied. Um, uh, it's a short briefing, like 10 pages, if you want to take a look at that. Um, we're also... Um, can I tell the story? It's, it's a good one. Okay. Um, um, in May of this year, um, myself and a, f a few uh, colleagues with TNI and also a, a local uh, 
uh, kind of activist network in Burma. Um, we brought together uh, kind of land rights, ethnic land rights people or activists, if you want to use that word now, that's a very bad word in Burma. So. Um, from both sides of the border, both who were actively working in their communities in Burma, also Yangon, and who were based uh, predominantly in Thailand, who have been working for years on these sort of kind of equitable issues. Um, and we brought, them, we brought them to Yangon for all of them to hang out together for a while and get to know each other and talk about their issues. Um, uncannily similarities across the country and what people are experiencing during this so-called uh, national peace process in terms of their land being taken. Um, and then, um, we, yeah, well, then we held a press conference with the development community to be like, don't forget these people when you're talking about your development um, advocacy goals or whatever. Um, um, and all that was really cool. But then we took them to Napidaw. And we all got on a, like, kind of a hippie bus. <laughs> like, there was 50 of us. And we all went to Napidaw to show them their new capital. Many, almost none of them had been there before. Um, they brought guitars, like it was the, the whole thing. It was it was really amazing, um, and I had I, I was able to line up four different meetings with uh, ministers and uh, people in the president's office who advised the president on different um, well economics, and um, three people dropped out um, the day uh, why we were on the bus going there. It's, oh, we're far too busy to meet um, in Burmese. That means we're totally scared shitless of meeting you. Um, translation. Um, and they all they all dropped out, and it was like really sad to get on the stand up in the bus and communicate that to everyone. Like um, your political representatives and people who are deciding fate for your communities have rejected meeting you. Um, and I'm I'm almost positive that if they were Burman Burmese, that I, I feel that they would have been mad. But I might be wrong on that, but I, I think it has everything to do with that they are ethnic. This is very so like very threatening, um, except for one person. We had one, we went all the way there, we had one meeting, and um, he was, he's a very interesting person, I've known him for five years, um, he is the person who, um, um, uh, what do you call it, um, advises the government on agribusiness policy, he had from like, I kind of figured that out a while ago, so he was like a very serious person for me to constantly interview, um, he works for Serge Kuhn. It's, it's an agribusiness consultancy firm owned by Serge Kuhn, who is one of the... Well, he is now... Because he didn't really line with the military, he's like the person that everyone wants to invest in because of their due diligence works for him. Um, he is a real estate developer, and also he's involved in agribusiness, um, which is also the same person, by the way, that George Soros tried to work with to get his telecoms um, bid. <clears throat> um... So this guy, who's very important on deciding how agribusiness is going to happen, we met with him, 50 of us. And each person went around uh, and said, this is what I feel about agribusiness. This is what my community wants. This is what we don't want. This is what's good development. This is what's bad development. And we're very excited about the opportunity for the peace process of the country. They were really like far too generous, in my opinion, but they were, and they were very respectful. All went around the room. Amazing things. This... Um, person um, who's very well spoken, educated in the United States in the 1970s, that's precisely the time the Green Revolution things were going on, uh, which is, I think, not incidental, um, said, I hear what you're saying, totally get it, thank you so much for communicating your grievances to me, don't worry, factory jobs are coming. Mm -hmm. This is what he said to 50 ethnic languages who went there to tell them about their economic, socioeconomic grievances. And a few people caught up and were like, let me say this again. 
and like retold their story of like we we want to keep our farms. This is all we know. My parents do not want to. You know, they did this again. And it was like, I hear you. We're figuring it out. It'll all be cool. There's like the jobs are coming. And like with that, got in this black SUV and like drove off. And we were just sitting there. It was like that was really amazing. Um, and it's not supposed to be this horribly depressing story. Um, I think. So I was like devastated, but my, my, my colleagues were like, that was a really fascinating experience and so helpful for us to like meet these people and like, and they found it like a really um, great opportunity to lobby them. Um, I don't quite see it that way, but like it was also just a reality check. This is, this is what you're dealing with. They, they, they want to give you, you want, they want to make you the world's or the Asia's cheapest labor force for, um, for making like scarves for us here in Oxford. Um, so with that, so, I will stop. So we're we're like, no, 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 you're fine. So we've gone just a little over time. So we'll, we'll end here. Uh, if you have other questions, Kevin can hang around for a bit to chat. Please join me in thanking uh, Kevin Lewis. Thank you.